Good morning, friends. I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to Paul's letter to Titus, where we'll spend the next bit of our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. There should be one within arm's reach for you, and either in the front of the pew or the front of the chair where you're sitting. We've provided those partly so you can follow along with this next bit of our time together. It will help you so much to be able to see what I'm talking about as I go line by line over this small section of the scriptures. But we also put those there in the hopes that you'll take it with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. Everything that we hope for in life and in death comes to us through the words of this book. That's why for the next bit of our time together, we're just going to, like a room full of cows, chew some cud. We're going to go over a small section of this letter. Not, we're not going to cover much ground in that way. But we're going to go over it and over it and over it because in this small section of Paul's letter to Titus comes one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel that is our only hope in life and in death. I, um, I recently heard a pastor from the UK that I deeply respect, a man named Christopher Ash, uh, tell a story in a sermon he was preaching about a Christian widow who was in great need financially. Uh, her congregation knew about her need took up a collection to try to offset some of those needs and sent their pastor over to her house with the money. But when he got there, pastor knocked, no answer. Kept knocking, no answer. Went on knocking, no one stirred. She never came to the door. Later on, this pastor runs into this widow, I guess at a church gathering, uh, maybe that following Sunday, and asks her, where were you? And she's almost homebound at this point. She's always available. Why not today? Where were you? And she said to him, oh, pastor, I didn't know it was you. I I thought it was the rent collector. I I didn't have the money to give to him, so I didn't come to the door. What Ash used this story to relate is what is often a a powerful barrier for us in our relationship to God. A barrier that often holds people back from the goodness and grace of God that's always available to them if they'll have it. Sometimes, friends, we hold back from him in fear because we expect God to come looking for the rent. We expect him to come demanding when, in fact, through Jesus, he's come to give. If you come to Christianity expecting what you found in other religions or in other cultures that you've been part of, you may have come expecting an entry fee of one sort or another. That's how the world works. You usually just get what you pay for. But in Christianity, we enter, we enter only on God's dime or not at all. For some of us who've been Christians even for a long time, We tend to forget what we can expect from God. And our relationship with him can be hindered by the fact that we know our best righteousness is just filthy rags. We wouldn't accept that. How can we expect God to? Especially when we're discouraged about how little progress we've made in our faith or how much sin we can still see surging up inside of us. We can struggle to see God as for us because we wouldn't be for us if we were him. And we can act in practice, if not in word, even if we never admit to it, friends. In practice, we can relate to him as if we can't come close until we have something better to offer than all this filthy rags. And friends, that's why there is nothing more practical to the Christian life 
than the sound doctrine at the heart of our faith. Paul wrote this letter to Titus to give him the practical help he needed so that Titus could give the people he was leading the practical help that they needed to honor God in the twists and turns of an everyday life. This is a letter that goes all the way down into the weeds. We saw this last week when we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 2. It's super specific because all these details matter to Paul and to Titus and should matter to us. But, but this week's text takes us down to the theological heart of the letter, to the, to the bedrock foundation underneath everything that comes for us as Christians, every twist and turn in our Christian life, everything asked of us, everything we're called to. It all rests on who God has already been for us in Jesus. This morning, we want to meditate on one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel you'll find anywhere. And I want to take our time and walk slowly through these lines because we believe, like Paul, that this good news down in the heart leads to lives that are suited to it, to lives that adorn it. Just like delicious fruit is born of a healthy tree's root system. We want to follow Paul to see the sound doctrine of God's word as a kind of compass that orients us now. And this is a compass with two points on it. Two points that I want to show you from the few verses we're going to read together this morning. Our whole lives as Christians are oriented by the grace of God that has appeared first and the glory of Christ that will appear. Our whole lives as Christians right now and for as long as we live and breathe are oriented by the grace of God that has appeared and the glory of Christ that will appear. Friends, will you stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11? I'm going to read through verse 15 this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. You may be seated. The first point on our compass, friends, the first bit of healthy doctrine that orients all of our lives as Christians is the grace of God that has appeared. In verse 11, Paul gives the reason for the lives of specific self-control he's described in verses 1 to 10. This is what we covered last week. Instructions for older women and older men, younger men and younger women, for Titus himself and even for those who were enslaved as believers. All of that specific instruction is grounded in the words of verse 11. For, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. As, as Paul unfolds it here, this is a grace, this grace that orients us. It's a grace that has a then and a now. A then and a now. Then, God's grace appeared, past tense. Here Paul has in mind Jesus. 
the birth and life and teaching and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and did all he did, the grace of God appeared in history in a more vivid and powerful way than it ever has before. The language matters here, friends. The grace of God appeared. It was always there. There was no graceless Old Testament God shaking his fist at the world, replaced by a graceful God in the New Testament. The grace was always there, and there were flashes of it all through his relationship to Israel. He identifies himself to Israel as the, the God who is slow to anger and, and full of steadfast love, and you see him again and again responding with compassion and grace to Israel's many failures. But there is something unique and new and vivid in the coming of Jesus, what, what the Apostle John describes as a word being made flesh through which we behold his glory, full of grace and truth. We see him now for the gracious God that he is in a new and deeper way. And oh, what beauty did we see in Christ. Think of the, think of the outcasts sitting beside the roads on which he walked as he made his way through his life. The, the, those people who are often turned away from by other travelers, the ones you don't want to make eye contact with because you're afraid they're going to ask you for something. Think of those with severe disabilities that he passed. Think of the lepers who no one could touch. Jesus didn't just make eye contact with them. He looked at them. He saw them. He went to them and addressed them. He asked them questions and took their answers seriously. He touched them and he healed them. The grace of God has appeared. Or think of the Think of the people who met with Jesus knowing that their lives had been ruined by their sin already. Think of the tax collectors he ate with, of the prostitutes who came to him and found welcome. Think of Jesus seeking out those who were done pretending they could stand on their own two feet and were willing to fall on him instead. The grace of God appeared in this man. And nowhere more clearly do we see the grace of God appearing than in, the, than in the end of Jesus' life, that he marched towards with a laser-like focus every day of his life on earth, was aimed at his opportunity to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. And when he died, he died not as a martyr to a lost cause, but as a sacrifice who accomplished everything he set out to do. Friends, we expect by nature for God to come collecting. And we're not completely wrong. God is just. We don't deserve good from him, not after having neglected him as the source of every good we've ever enjoyed, not after using the good gifts he's given to us on our terms for our purposes. Sin does have consequences. And God requires that these consequences be fulfilled. All justice depends on it. But in Jesus, God didn't come to collect but to contribute. He didn't come to demand but to give. He didn't come to collect a debt but to pay one for our freedom in life if we trust in him. I love the way Paul puts this in verse 14 where he's describing Jesus again. And describes him as the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness, that was us. That's what we brought to the table. But he gave himself to set us free. And when Paul says in verse 11 that this grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, what he means is that anybody 
can get in on this. You are not the exception. He doesn't mean that everyone will. Many will reject his offer and prefer to go their own way. But he's just finished a list that covers all sorts of people, old and young, slave and free. And now he's saying, all these people, all of them can get in on this because it depends on grace. Come without money to buy. Just come hungry and you will be fed. All you need is your need. So come and be satisfied. Friend, you are not the exception. You can be redeemed today. No matter what you've done. Because the grace of God has already appeared. That's the then to this grace that has appeared. That's the rooted in the past, once and for all, revelation of grace you won't find anywhere else. But it has a now component as well. Paul goes there in verse 12. This same grace that has appeared, the same grace that brings salvation for anyone who will ask, is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. These phrases, I, I think, are just a summary of what he's just said in the first 10 verses of this chapter. Those are just really specific examples of how to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. They're just examples of what an upright and godly life looks for. Now, he's saying, God's grace that has appeared is training you for this life. Now, maybe you've assumed or been taught that God's grace is just a starting point for the Christian life. Maybe you, you understand forgiveness is a big part of this and you're willing to ask him for it. You're glad about this undeserved second chance that's come your way and, and maybe even see in God's grace a kind of power boost that helps you to do better next time. But now, one way or another, it's over to you. If you were moving quickly through this this section of the letter, you might even take that from what Paul says here if you're not careful to pay attention and slow down. I mean, as soon as Paul has mentioned the grace of God that's appeared, immediately he's talking about, again about good works. Again, he's, he's right back to saying no to worldly passions and yes to uprightness and self-control. The grace of God appeared, now over to you guys is how you might read that. Show me what you've got. Maybe Jesus got you caught up on the rent, you'd fallen behind, but next month's on you because, you know, no lunch is really free. But that's not what Paul says at all, friends. Every word here matters. The grace of God that has appeared in Jesus is now training us to live like this in the present age, right now, at work. This training is, uh, this word training is a word used for, for parental oversight. So don't think a teacher standing up in front of a, of a class and just lecturing with some useful information that you can go and take and put into practice. Not that kind of teaching. This isn't the kind of teaching from the front that comes in advance of a test you have to pass. This training is the kind of care and correction that comes up close and personal. It's hands-on. See, even as Christians, we can sometimes think of God kind of like a judge at an Olympic diving match. You know, sitting back from the pool, behind the table, red pen in hand, scorecard in front, watching. You know, that, that was a nice flip there, but on the entry, the splash was a little bigger than it should have been, 7.4. Well, that, that entry was fine that time. That was better, but on this second attempt, you know, you, you didn't keep your legs tight enough on that second rotation, 8.6. God sitting back and saying, let's see what you've got. 
When, when if this word is our guide, and if grace is what he's talking about here, God is actually much more like the parent in the pool with the kid who's four and doesn't know how to swim, but is trying his best. That kid's just flailing around, you know, he's kicking, he's moving his arms, he's moving his legs, everything's moving, but it's not moving very well. I mean, it's, it's a disaster. I mean, this is a vivid personal memory of mine from like two weeks ago. It's a mess, but the, but the father's in the pool with them. He's right beside him. I mean, more often than not, he's got his hand up under his belly, keeping him afloat while he thinks he's actually swimming. Training him, because his survival is on me as a father. God's grace is like that. It's grace that keeps on working. It didn't come to us as a do-it-yourself training manual tossed our way with good wishes and his compliments. It came to us as a person. A person who lived and died and then rose (laughs) to carry on the good work of our rescue. In, in verse 14, I, back, back to this description Paul gives us of Jesus, I love to read it alongside verse 12. Because here, the, here Paul tells us this, this Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, now look what he's up to. <laughs> he's purifying for himself a people for his own possession. When you read verse 12, this grace of God that trains us towards good works, I want you to read it in light of verse 14. Jesus is the one working. This renovation project is his. And he'll carry it all the way to the end. That's what he's given his life to do. Because, verse 14, this is a people of his possession. You belong to him. Many of you will know that over the last 10 years or so, my wife has developed a passion for gardening. And not just a passion, but like an obvious and wonderful skill for the work of gardening. Uh, It's beautiful to see. I mean, our previous home's flower beds, she just transformed these things into this botanical wonderland with incredible variety and, and, and something for every season and, and barely any space that wasn't used to cultivate beauty. Many of you will also know that our family had the chance to move recently into this incredible neighborhood to be closer to our church. And that opportunity was you know, an incredibly wonderful gift from God that we are deeply grateful for. But you know what? Those flower beds weren't easy to leave. There was a lot invested. And in our new place... The garden space is what you might call a blank canvas. That's a little bit of positive spin on my part. (laughs) Maybe a more realistic description would be some sort of desert waste, at least as it was when she took it over. Even now, friends, these beds don't look like much. And they don't really have anything to recommend them on their own. But the most important thing to know about our flower beds is that they belong to her now. And they will not be what they are for long. She's bought them. In a way, she has given herself now to purify them. And it is a good thing to be a flower bed loved by this woman. She knows exactly what they need. She knows all the signs that their enemies at work. She can tell when they're getting too much or too little sun. When they're getting too much or too little water, she knows the signs that the bugs are at work on them. She knows. And those enemies are not the enemies of her plants. They're her enemies. Their flourishing is her passion. 
And when Paul talks about these upright, godly lives in the present age, when he talks about a people zealous for good works, verse 14, he's not speaking those words behind a wagging finger and or else following close behind. He's speaking the language not of threat but of promise. If you're in Christ, Paul is right here describing your future. You will be zealous for good works. You will thrive because his plants always do. Friends, before you can take up all the wonderful practical instruction in this letter to Titus or any of the instruction that comes to us through the Bible, you need to know first what God's grace that has appeared is doing for you right now in the present age. I know many of you stumbled in here this morning, broken down on the inside by the ongoing battle against sin. Friends, I know you're weary. I know that for many of you, for whatever part of you is drawn to the empty promises of lust, the better part of you longs to be free. I know that for many of you, the anxiety that plagues your thoughts and darkens your days feels like a curse that you can't stand, but yet you can't stop feeding. And I know for some of you this very morning, the ongoing battle with indwelling sin feels hopeless. And friends, if you had a God who was just standing by waiting for you to pay up, you know what? It it would be. You may as well give up now and save yourself the trouble. But that is not the sort of God you have. Oh, friends, don't give up. The grace of Christ has appeared. Christ has died, but Christ is risen. Do you know what he's doing with his life now? He's purifying for himself a people for his own possession. That's you. And what he starts, he finishes always, every time. Those of you who are regulars here at our church are going to have to forgive me for making another quote from my, of my favorite section of my favorite book on the Christian life. But I can't resist because it's too perfect for this spot. By an English pastor named Richard Sibbs in a book called The Bruce Reed, he says this of Christ's work to fight for us. Christ will take our part against our corruptions. They are his enemies as well as ours. Let us not look so much who are our enemies as who is our judge and captain. (laughs) Not what they threaten, but what he promises. We have far more for us than against us. And what coward would not fight when he is sure of victory? None are here overcome, but he that will not fight. So fight on, friends. The grace of God has appeared already, and Christ fights for you. That's point number one on the compass that orients our lives now. The grace of God has appeared. But there is another point on this compass. The glory of Christ that will appear. In verse 13, Paul again uses the word for appear, only where the first time he referred to what's happened already, now he refers to what's going to happen in time. He's referring to the content of the Christian's hope, what he calls our our blessed hope. 
And that is the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, friends, this has a then and a now component in how it orients us. A then only now towards the future that affects how we live now. We look back, but we look ahead for the help we need right now. So consider the then. Paul says we wait for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of Jesus. What's that about? I suppose all of us have a kind of general sense of what glory involves. I mean, it involves some sort of greatness that's visible to other people and acknowledged by them. We see glimmers of it in every walk-off home run or every Oscar statue taken home by a winner. And in some ways, the glory of Christ is similar to that sort of glory. It comes from the great victory that he's won for us over sin and death and all their minions. But this glory, this victory, it's not like somebody winning an Oscar. When you see that kind of glory, at best, you feel good for them. Maybe you think it was just, it was well-deserved, they ought to win that prize. Maybe at worst, you feel envy when somebody else gets glory like that. And that envy, even if it's sinful, at least makes sense. Because a glory like that one, for a victory like that one, it really is just theirs. It has nothing to do with you. The glory of Christ is less like the glory of an Oscar winner who's added another trophy to the case. And far more like the glory of an ancient king or general returning home from battle. If you were a citizen of ancient Rome in those days and your king had gone off to war, you're waiting for somebody to appear on the horizon because someone will. It'll either be your king and your army returning at the head of a victory parade or it'll be your enemy coming to sack your city and slaughter your people. Someone will appear. And in the meantime, your life hangs in the balance while your representative fights for you. But when your guy returns at the head of your army, he returns in glory. But it isn't just his. It's yours too. He may have won the victory while you stayed home, but in a way, you share it. Because his honor means your peace. His victory means your life. His glory, therefore, your joy. And that's what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior. Jesus Christ. He's not thinking of another resurrection appearance, as wonderful as it might be. I mean, I'd love to be able to touch the the nail-scarred hands and the the spear wound in the side. I'd love to be able to eat some wood-fired fish with him in a waterfront venue. That would be great, but that's not what Paul has in mind. He has in mind the moment when our faith is turned to sight forever. When the one we've loved without seeing, we will see without avail. He has in mind the final conquest of all evil and the renewal of all things. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the day you were made to long for. This is the feast you were made to crave. Do you? Don't you long to walk by sight rather than by faith? Don't you long to be free once and for all from any shadow of doubt? Don't you long to be done with sinning? Aren't you exhausted by the brokenness of this world? It is so beautiful and so good, and his grace is so evident throughout it. 
but it's just so pervasively broken. And injustice spreads all over it like a poison across every time and place in which we humans have ever made our lives. It's everywhere. Aren't you sick of it? If you're paying attention, your heart stays broken by the effects of injustice on the lives of vulnerable people. And if you're paying close attention, your mind is tied into knots and worn down to a nub and just exhausted by the complexity of the problems that injustice creates, by the immense challenge of of undoing the awful effects of what we've done. If we care as we ought to, but see our limits as they really are, we are going to long for the radical intervention that it must take to set things right. We will cry out in our minds, if not in our mouths, God, give us a wonderful counselor. Give us somebody who knows what to do, please. God, give us a prince of peace for this world of division and conflict. Oh, God, put the government on his shoulders, please, and don't let it ever fall off. Don't you crave a peace that is unchallenged and unending and unblemished that will only ever increase? Friends, if this is what you want, then what you want is the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to see that glory appear. And one day, one day, friends, it will. It will. So what do we do now? How does that then orient our lives now? I want to close with two encouragements for you. For now, first, we must work at waiting. (laughs) We must work at waiting. This is the main posture that Paul draws our attention to in verse 13. The grace of God has appeared. It's training us now to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live the self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age that bring God glory and that are good for us. That's what his grace is doing. Meanwhile, we're waiting, waiting for our blessed hope. This is loaded language. This waiting is a posture with a long history for God's people. And waiting isn't easy. I could talk to you guys about the culture of instant gratification we live in. You know, I could cite books and articles showing the effects that come from living in a time when you can order food and have it delivered in minutes and sign up for a TV subscription to be streaming the game inside of half an hour or send a message that goes all the way on the other side of the world in and, and, and a journey that would have taken months or years to, not more than a century ago, but takes seconds now. We could talk about that, but that would be so misleading. Because waiting isn't hard for us because we live in this age of the internet and Amazon same-day delivery. That ain't what makes waiting hard. It's hard for us for the same reason it was so hard for Israel over and over again throughout their history. Waiting of the sort that Paul has in mind is hard for us because the promises of God are beyond our sight and beyond our control. These sweet, rich promises depend completely on him. And they'll come entirely on his timing or not at all. Meanwhile, in our own minds and in the world all around us, we're going to constantly be drawn to the prospect of one after another little heaven on earth. A utopia of one sort or another that we could create on our design and within our reach. We'll always be tempted to look for these. And that's why waiting is no passive game. This isn't sitting back on your hands and streaming the next episode on Netflix kind of waiting. This waiting is a kind of warfare. 
Or think of it as a cultivating of a hunger on purpose that nothing but God's promises could ever satisfy. Think of waiting as building an appetite and refusing to take the edge off of it. We will always be tempted to pin our hopes on on a heaven that we can see and smell and touch and, if possible, build for ourselves on our terms, by our hands. We're always going to be tempted to that. Something more tangible, something more immediate. But we will choose to wait because we know that, that nothing in our reach could possibly satisfy this hunger. Not this year's summer vacation. Not that next trip to the shopping mall. Not whoever may win next, the next general election. So much better to stay hungry and to hope than to pin our hopes to these little piddly heavens. Waiting means refusing any substitute to the new world that God has promised under the only king who could possibly pull it off for us. We will work on waiting. That's what we do now. It takes effort and discipline. And while we work, a second encouragement for you, friends. While we work for now, while we work on waiting, there is nothing more useful that we can do together than remind one another of the hope of heaven. Sometimes I hear heaven described as a kind of distraction from life now. You know, as if to talk about it is to be guilty of living life with a head stuck in the sand or up in the clouds, blind to the needs of other people around us and the opportunities that we have right now. Paul didn't see it that way. Paul puts the hope of heaven squarely in the middle of this letter that is relentlessly practical. Because he knew the truth. There is nothing more practical for our lives that we're living now than the hope that is set before us. Friends, this is where our zeal for good works comes from. How else could we sustain it? How how else could we sustain it when what we long for seems so far away? Whether you're you're fighting against pornography or against poverty, the mountain you're climbing is often going to stretch up higher than what you can see. How do you keep climbing then? How do you keep going when you don't know how far it stretches and when the costs to you are so high? Only, friends, only if you know your future is clear and bright and as certain as the empty tomb of of our resurrected Savior. That's the only way you keep going when it's hard. And this... This hope comes to us because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. One way to think about our local church is as a group of people who've committed to wait together. That's what we're doing with one another. To wait together and to feed one another week by week and day by day on the only hope that lasts. This is the hope that unifies us, however we might disagree about the important concerns of this world. This is the hope. This is that north star on our compass that orients us together now and in our ministry to one another. Perhaps my my favorite passage on heaven is Isaiah chapter 25. I want to read it to you now because it makes me think of you guys. It makes me think of my church family and the hope that we have in common. I want to read to you from Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah prophesies, on, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, 
of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. I love these words. But it's the next verse that makes me think of you. Verse 9. It will be said on that day. That day when our faith is turned to sight. Once and for all. Behold. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. These are plural terms, friends. I love this. Imagine God's people seeing what they've been longing for, turning to one another with knowing glances and words full of hope and joy. He's here. And in my imagination, as will Lord willing be in reality someday, it's us talking back and forth to one another. This is our God, Mitchell. We've waited for him, Miss Sue. We waited. He came. That he might save us. And he has, Eric, he has saved us. This is the Lord, Carly. We have waited for him, Laney. Come on, everybody. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Guys, that is our future. This is talking about us. Don't y'all long for that day. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until then, I'm just so grateful for the chance to wait with you. Let's pray that the Lord will help us. Oh, Father. Our hearts are so often fickle and our minds so easily turned by the latest empty promises of this world. Fight for us. Protect us by the power of your spirit through the hope that comes in your word and through the life that we live together. And preserve us for the great day on which we will rejoice and be glad We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.